This episode of Data Knots is brought to you by IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30 to get a free 7-day trial and 30% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. As the Datanaut starship wends its way through the farthest reaches of the infrastructure universe, the hardworking crew likes to pause now and then to reflect on how far they've come. Today is just such an event as the Datanauts notch their 100th episode. To mark this auspicious milestone, today's show gets a little personal with an Ask Me Anything style episode in which Chris and Ethan will answer listener questions. I'm Drew Conry-Murray, and I've beamed aboard the bridge to serve as a guest host. I'll be posing questions to Chris Wall. He's at Chris Wall on Twitter, and he always plays a chaotic evil paladin just to mess with the Dungeon Master. And, of course, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks, who secretly performs in underground clubs as the nerdcore rapper QOS. If you haven't already guessed, this is the Data Knots podcast. You can find this and all our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. And, guys, congratulations on 100 shows. Oh, that Thanks. is awesome. Wait, isn't shows. a chaotic yes. evil paladin a death knight? I just want to expose a little bit of my nerdiness there. Although I'm more, I'm more of a Pathfinder guy myself. But yeah, thank you. And if I was an underground club nerdcore rapper, QOS would totally be my name. That has to happen someday. In my, my alter ego. It would be cool and people would know what it means too. You'd, they would intrinsically think that you're bad at rapping. That's right. Because nobody QOS, exactly. right? Isn't that the, I don't know. All right, so this is an Ask Me Anything style show, so listeners have submitted questions. I'm going to lead us off with the first one from someone named Griffin. He says, if we know file system storage is more performant than object storage, and we know drives are getting cheaper, does object storage have a place in the future of storage? Chris, that sounds like a question you could handle. No, I mean, uh, the, the crux of it is currently file system storage is more performant I don't know if that's going to be a forever sort of thing. There's a lot of advantages that we've talked about on past shows between block, file, object, table, query. There's all sorts of different types of storage. Object is obviously really good at being distributed, geographically dispersed, avoiding a lot of the problems that you have at scale and things like that. I would say that currently, yes, file system storage is quite performant from an IO intensive perspective. And I, I don't know if we'll ever really get rid of something like that for running file systems and operating systems for workloads. But ultimately, I don't know if that's going to be a forever sort of thing. I've actually looked at a couple of different offerings from some vendors who are looking to drive the performance into object store for the reasons that I've outlined. You know, if you look at the cap theorem, consistency may not be necessarily a primary thing there, but the availability and partition handling are definitely things that object storage is quite good at. So I guess the question is, does it have a place in the future storage? 100,000% yes. But I don't think it's necessarily like who's going to win. It's not the, the Thunderdome of storage. I think file, table, query, object, you know, they're all going to have places. And object's only going to get better. Yeah, well, you're hitting it. What my suspicion was is that this is positioned as an either-or question from Griffin. But in fact, it's use case specific. You're going to put in a storage system that is designed with the combination of performance and economics that matches your workload. And there isn't ever going to be any one right answer where one is eclipsing the other. And, ah, you know, this whole file storage that, yeah, you know, we're done with that. We've moved on. Multiple technologies for multiple problems. 
do storage technologies ever actually go away, generally speaking? Uh, I think certain pieces and parts can go. Like, I feel like there's protocols that have obviously been deprecated over time. Things like fiber channel kind of slowly leaking away from a market share perspective. I think those things specifically could go away. But man, tech is like that junk drawer that you have in your kitchen or <laughs> you know that, that box of stuff in your attic. We never get rid of anything. Like the, A lot of the systems that were invented twice as long as I've been alive, you know, like back in the 60s and things like that, are still in use. COBOL is still in use. Mainframe is still in use. And that's because that stuff's really sticky. However, though, I do have this theory that eventually as we start to shift the model between, you know, like kind of who's in control of IT right now, it's people and we're leveraging AI and ML and things like that to do our bidding. I think as that starts to flip and we have more assistance or, or perhaps even something else kind of writing the code and deciding on the architecture because the scale and the complexity is too large for a person to put it in his or her head. I think then we might start to see some legacy tech evaporate just because there'll be huge financial and technological drivers to do so. But as long as there's us walking bags of meat controlling everything, I don't see that really happening anytime soon. Yeah, you're hitting on some, like in networking, there's been a lot of different transports for the wide area that have really faded with time. In fact, there was a discussion in a Slack group that I was on today where people were complaining about, oh, there's still frame relay on some of the Cisco professional level exams. Yes. But no one uses frame relay anymore. In fact, going back 10 years ago, I was part of a transition where, well, actually all of our carriers were retiring frame relay and forcing us to go over to MPLS. Why? It was economics. The economics of getting off of frame relay for them and moving to MPLS was such a big deal that they were going to make their customers transition over. And so, right, when there's money you know, in the mix, that'll happen. Same thing with the SNA. We had some of our customers that were plumbed to us for payment card services back in the day with SNA. No one uses SNA anymore. Can you still find information about it and get products that support it? Sure. But by and large, it's dead. The economics have migrated everyone over to IP as the transport, and SNA is gone. You know what it reminds me of? Remember when computers all came with serial ports and AT ports and things like that for your keyboard? And then finally, I think it was like maybe a decade ago, someone's like, we're going to get rid of that. It's just not going to be there anymore. It highlights this passion that we have, I think, as technologists to always make everything backwards compatible. And the transition to get like everything on the USB from a peripheral perspective was a great example where even in the consumer market, where I feel like things are much more fluid, it just took time to get all that stuff to go from the circular style five pin keyboard connectors and, and DB2s and things like that on over to USB. So everything's kind of sticky. All right. So we let off with a question for Chris. This next question from Matt is clearly a question for Ethan. VXLAN, VTEP location, and getting out of the data center. How? Yeah, pretty short question from Matt. I'll lead off, although I, I actually, I suspect Chris, because of your background in your uh, VCDX and networking and NSX may have some insight into this too. You know, So first up, Matt, that question is a show unto itself. So, so what Matt is asking, if you're unfamiliar with these sort of architectures, VXLAN, this would be multi-tenancy within a data center where within a VXLAN, you're using VXLAN to wrap traffic for a specific tenant and then carry that traffic around the data center. The advantage is you can run a pure layer three fabric and still have layer two connectivity between endpoints no matter where they're spread around the data center as long as they're all in the same VXLAN. So a VTEP is a VXLAN tunnel endpoint. It is the device that does your encapsulation between your Ethernet frame and then sticks a VXLAN 
end cap around it and then shuttles it across the data center somewhere. Some VTEPs can also do VXLAN routing where they can translate from one VXLAN to another, which there's some scenarios where you might need to do that. And VTEPs can also do DCAP where it's pulling the VXLAN header off and sometimes they will then do VXLAN to VLAN, good old-fashioned 802.1Q translation. So to go back to Matt's question, VXLAN, VTEP location, getting out of the DC, how do you do it? So again, first of all, Matt, that's a show unto itself, which I think is a great idea. I already started Googling people that have done presentations on this because there's a lot of different strategies for how you would get this done. Uh, And some people that have done lots of long presentations on exactly this because there's no one right answer. But here's a short answer. A short answer of how you're going to do this, roughly speaking, is you're going to map your VXLAN to a VLAN at the edge of your leaf spine network. So if we assume that you've got a big leaf spine and you're running VXLAN across that, that there's going to be some device at the edge of that leaf spine that connects you from that leaf spine domain to the rest of your network, including the wide area. So at that edge device, he's going to do a translation for you from VXLAN, do a decap, and then translate that into a VLAN and then push it into the core. Your core router is then going to take that VLAN, probably be acting as your default gateway, and then send that traffic into the WAN, including possibly the internet. On the way back, you're going to follow the same path just in reverse. The traffic is going to come back from the WAN, hit your core router, get put onto the proper VLAN where it's going to hit the edge device of your leaf spine, get put back into VXLAN, and then sent back into the host. Now, a couple of gotchas here if you begin thinking about this. VXLAN is all about multi-tenancy, and so it's possible if you're operating a really big network with lots and lots of uh, tenants, you could have overlapping IP address space. So you know, in that case, you can't just unwrap your, your VXLAN packet, dump it into the VLAN, and off you go, because then you can have colliding IP addresses. So in some cases, you're going to need to assume that NAT overload is being done before you're heading out of the VXLAN. And you're translating to a public IP address somewhere. You know, if you if you look at public cloud, they do a lot of that, where you're exposing a public IP address for what you've got internally on as workload in the public cloud. You might also be using a proxy server, so you point everything in, inside your VXLAN to a proxy server, and the proxy server is the one guy that can get out using a public IP address to the public internet. So those may be part of the design. And then to address VTEP location, that's going to depend. But again, it's most likely going to be that leaf edge switch that is doing that work for you. It's going to decap the VXLAN, map to VLAN forward into the core, and then do the reverse. But it's not the only way you can do it. I mean, VXLAN in a hardware switch is usually a scaling solution. So you may be doing that translation at a software switch that's happening in the hypervisor, and you've got full functionality there to do the same thing. And it really depends on how you've laid it out and uh, and why. Chris, do you happen to have any comments on this? I don't know if you got into this sort of design work <laughs> for uh, on any of the NSX work work you might have done. It's hard to follow four minutes of you vomiting <laughs> VXLAN passion. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, obviously this is this is your bag and, and I, I love you for it. I'll just say the designs that I most commonly worked with used VMware NSX because that's my that's my bailiwick. I'm not really a hardware switch guy. And the VTEP location is on a VM kernel port within the hypervisor. So it's basically creating a large distributed type switch using bits of compute and offload capabilities in the NIC on your VMware hosts. So that's where the VTEP locations were. VXLAN was just you know kind of the overlay running between all the hosts. 
bridging wasn't too common. That's a way you can get VXLAN to VLAN. There was a lot of caveats at the time to get one or the other. For the most part, I would do multi-tier designs where you've got a large application that you kind of want to stamp out. So MSP, ISP was the most common use case where you're looking to host you know, PeopleSoft, and it requires 30 servers plus all these other services that go along with it, and you want the IP schema to be the same in each environment. So you put kind of this normal VLAN routed edge device in your normal kind of LAN, and everything within that bubble was VXLAN using the same layer three addresses internally for all the services and the workloads. And that was pretty much all handled in software. The only thing you had to do with the hardware layer was extend the size of the frame, the maximum, the MTU on basically everything yeah. because you're, you're doing an overlay. Therefore, it's not going to be 1,500 bytes. Okay, and I'm throwing a question in the mix here just because I'm hosting the show so I can. I'm hearing a lot about multi-cloud and workloads moving among public clouds. My question is, do you guys see a day when we'll actually be able to go from one public cloud to another, say, Amazon to Azure? Or is this just a pipe dream and whichever cloud you sort of bought into at the start, you're kind of locked in? I'll take a stab at that. Um, So it will depend on what features you're taking advantage of within each of those public clouds. So if you're just doing simple hosting of a workload and connecting to some storage and you've got some basic networking, you're going to be able to move that workload around. And we're already seeing a lot of solutions out there from companies that'll help do those translations for you and move that workload from one public cloud to the other and give you a lot of capabilities to mirror you know, security and configuration between one and the other for you. So Accelerate is in that space. VMware is starting to get into that game more and more now. By the time this show comes out with some of the things they've been announcing at VMworld US at the end of August 2017, that's actually a developing market. How do you make it so that you can move between one public cloud and another for whatever your reasons are and do it easily and there'll be orchestrator of orchestrators solutions that will make that happen for you? Where the lock-in comes in is if you start using a lot of the value-added services, so I have been working on AWS training, and as you dig into what AWS offers and all the special services that are there, if you're using those, there aren't necessarily one-for-one offerings where it would be very easy for you to move that workload from AWS to Azure, let's say, because the way AWS is doing it is unique, and maybe there isn't an offering that's exactly like that in Azure. Even if there is, it would be too hard to translate to easily just pick up the workload and move it. So, So there's an it depends answer, Drew. Gotta love the it depends. Yeah, I mean, I respect what you're saying, Ethan. I don't necessarily agree with all of it or most of it. I I suppose it depends on what you define as a workload. To me, there's two schools of thought. There's the, we love vMotion and live migration across VMware and Hyper-V. And we're looking to, at an infrastructure layer, move the whole thing, the application, the operating system, the entire chunk of stuff from one environment to the next, which to me, that's pretty poor design decision to do that you know the idea of migration across hypervisors was there to alleviate infrastructure issues for applications that are too quote-unquote ignorant or dumb of what's going on to to handle that and they'll try to apply that to multi-data center just seems really goofy to me i think it's really just more part two of the answer you know like if the workload is the data set and then the compute to do things with the data set That, to me, it's already here today. You can move around the workload based on spinning up and down compute. And that's where I get excited about, you know, like what Kubernetes is doing or or really anything that's able to schedule compute where you've got maybe some kind of replicated storage underneath so that it can access 
read-only copies that are local to it because because ideally what you're trying to solve for is the storage, the data, you know, the bits and things that answer the questions, either bits flowing in or, or looking to read bits to make decisions on them. And to try to say that that can just move around, you know, the, the data gravity problem, the idea that as you start building data and building more data, then it will just keep adding to itself is real. Uh, and to try to just move all of that in mass for like reactive type things like, oh, I need more stuff in this other environment. I just don't feel like that's ever really going to be viable. Whereas if you were able to distribute things and just run the compute at the data itself, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it almost sounds like a question of even if you could, should you or why would you? I'm very opinionated on that. I get asked it a lot. And so I probably wasn't the most eloquent in that answer, but no, that's good. Can't you know, always agree. I... Oh, look, the gang's all here. I realize I may be unknown to a few of you. This is Jen, your trusty editor. I mean, I wasn't strictly invited to this party, but I'd like to see them stop me. So anyway, my takeaway is that Ethan and Chris are going to fight. Well, probably not. But stick around, just in case. Okay, Data Knots listeners, we're going to take a minute and talk about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. With IT Pro TV, you are getting the most current IT training. They have over 2,000 hours of content in their library, and they are adding over 125 hours each week. How do you get at all that content? Really, any way you want. You can stream the courses live, of course, or on demand, and you can do it from anywhere in the world. And they are everywhere that you are. So Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC. They're on iOS and Android with dedicated apps. So what is it that you want to watch? Well, check out the calendar. they got a bunch of upcoming courses. Some of the new ones include Kali Linux, CCNA CyberOps, CompTIA A+. Some of you are probably managing a team of people that need training well. IT Pro TV has a team solution. That gives you group pricing and then access to the IT Pro TV supervisor portal. With the supervisor portal, you can gain full control over your team's training schedule, create custom groups, give training assignments to individuals, and then see how everyone's doing, the individual and group analytics. And so if you're thinking about this, it's kind of like you don't really have a lot of reason to send staff off-site for training because you can manage all of their training with all of this content using IT Pro TV. Interested? Okay. Go to itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. To learn more about IT Pro TV's team solution, sign up for a free demo of their supervisor portal. That's itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30. All right, we're back with more questions. This comes from Colin. As a longtime Windows VMware guy, any tips on becoming a, quote, full-stack engineer, things like DevOps, containers, automation, cloud, et cetera, or something I know I need to learn, but I feel paralyzed into actually learning all this new technology. And Chris, this sounds like a good one for you. Oh, great. It's like I was voluntold. No worries, though. Yeah, it is scary. There's a lot of stuff out there. The analysis paralysis is real, and a lot of people feel that. With that said, I don't know. I would imagine you get a joy from learning new things. So recently, as an example, I needed to create a new build pipeline for some code. And there's a lot of them out there, especially in the PowerShell world. There's Sake, there's Invoke Build. They're like mushrooms after a rain. 
I ended up just picking one and going into it and learning what it did. I chose Invoke Build, if you're curious. Read the documentation, tinkered with it for about a day or two, and got to that light bulb moment. I was like, okay, now this makes sense. And that fed into some other things. The reason why I felt like this was a good place to focus my attention was I needed it. I needed a build process. And I think far too often people look at full stack engineering and all the topics that go with it and all the technologies that go with it as like a Pokemon game, got to catch them all, which is a bad way to do it because that's never going to happen. Or you go about it without a real goal in mind. You just like, okay, I'm going to learn Docker because, you know, and and I feel like you got to start with, okay, what is something that I would like to do? In my case, I wanted to set up a build process entirely using PowerShell because that's my language of choice. And I needed something to do that. So I kind of looked at a few different choices and tools, picked one and spent a day or two learning it in a few hours in the morning, afternoon, that kind of thing. So I feel like as long as you got a goal in mind, like this is what I want out of a, out of something, that will feed into the passion and the joy of learning. And that like, oh, I don't know anything. A day later, you're like, I know some stuff. And then a week later, you're like, I feel pretty good. And then you'll find some other things to learn and it just continues to snowball. So you just have to find that point where you're kind of rolling the ball, the little tiny snowball over the edge and give it, you know, a couple weeks, months, years and becomes this huge avalanche. Yeah, my two cents to follow on with that is just pick a thing and uh, and, and go for it. If you've got a reason to learn it, that's that's even better. So for now, I am further behind on my full stack engineer journey than Chris might be. Because I've been so steeped in networking for so long. So the thing I've picked and what I'm working on right now is public cloud training. So I'm working on uh, Amazon Web Services. There's lots of training out there. I happen to be going through some courses with acloud.guru because those are very affordable courses that are very well reviewed. That's a yeah, good one. And, and I'm learning a ton. Just sitting there, going through stuff, starting to go through labs and uh, lab exercises, et cetera. That starts to bring together a lot of things, and I'm focused. It's on one thing. I'm not like, I'm doing that, and I'm doing Docker, and I'm doing six other things. I have experimented with a lot of this other stuff, but I'm focusing now on the one thing, you know, which is AWS training, and then I'll, I'll jump off from that onto something else as that snowball begins to grow for me. Ethan, I'm just imagining you like you've got this network scale that's built up over time. Like You've got like a crust on you. <laughs> There's so many like protocols and routing things and... You're just like, ah, it's hard to move through all this like network. <laughs> and, and it's part joke, but it's also part reality because just like I talked about data gravity earlier, there could be like a knowledge gravity. Like, oh, I'm so invested in networking as your example. And for me, for a long time, it was VMware or, or VMware virtualization that you know that if you deviate, some of that's going to go away. Like as you start moving towards some of the topics, some of that, some of that crust is going to flake off because you're going to forget you know, what is this thing or what is that other thing? And I've forgotten so much about VMware, but that's okay, I guess is the point. There's an important point here, though, that that you're making indirectly, which is a lot of that knowledge that fades is okay if it fades because the market is moving on. And so what's hitting me is the deep knowledge I've built up over networking over the last, you know, 15 odd years is becoming irrelevant to an increasing number of businesses that are out there and what's more important to them. You know, they're looking for a different skill set. And so I'm trying to pivot to the places where I think the majority of the market is going to be interested. And definitely public cloud's got a huge groundswell that continues to grow. And so I'm right, scraping off some of those scales and some of that knowledge because it's becoming for a certain number of people I might be doing business with as a consultant or whatever irrelevant. It just isn't that important to them anymore because they're not building their local infrastructure, uh, some of these folks, or they don't want to invest further in it. 
And at the same time, if you really need to go and find those old flakes, it's out there on the internet somewhere. Oh, absolutely. If there's something I forget that I need to know. And ironically, it's one of those things that's happened to many of us, that blog, you search for some tidbit of knowledge and you find something you wrote three years ago. It's happened to me a few times. You're like, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, past self. <laughs> All right. Another question. And Chris, though, sounds like it's aimed at you initially. What is your current coding environment of choice? And this comes from Jeremy. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mostly am a PowerShell with a minor. <laughs> it's like a degree. Power, PowerShell major with a minor in Python and Go. My environment of choice currently has changed to Microsoft's Visual Studio code. And if you hear Visual Studio and you wince, I'm with you because traditional Visual Studio, I think it was like four gigabytes to download and this huge install. And it was super thick and meant for like, you know, really, really deep in the weeds developers. Visual Studio code is awesome. It's lightweight. It's available for Mac, Windows, and uh, Linux. It's iterative in its design, so it's always being updated. The help is amazing. It can handle way more than PowerShell. It's got plugins. I mean, holy cow, they really hit a home run with Visual Studio Code on Twitter. It's just at code. And so I'm using that. Honestly, I just transitioned to the point where I'm full-time using that. I was using PowerShell ISE, and before that, the Power GUI offering from uh, Quest uh, for quite some time. But now that Visual Studio Code has a formatting utility, like if you hit Control-Shift-P, I think it is, for the control palette, or maybe just F1 will get you the control palette, you can type format. It'll actually adjust all your code to the proper formatting style sheet that is prevalent for PowerShell or whatever. And that used to be a refactoring option within ISE steroids for PowerShell ISE. That was one of the big holdouts that I was waiting on, plus the debugger and other things for integrated PowerShell within Visual Studio Code are on par or actually better than ISE. So I have fully transitioned over. It's free. I can't like advocate for it enough. It's really awesome. Go get it. Visual Studio Code, Chris, is that only for PowerShell or does it support other coding environments too? It supports anything you want. It's plugin-based. So when I loaded a PS1 file, which is the extension for PowerShell, it was like, hey, you should probably go down the PowerShell plugin to add all of the feature functionality for that to code. And I love that because code then comes in really, really lightweight. VS Code comes in really lightweight. It's basically just a text editor with some fancy formatting and, and, and you know other things. And then you add whatever it is that you need to it so it remains really, really light. And that's, that's what I like. Interesting. Okay. So because I've been using Sublime Text as my editor because it's got wonderful syntax highlighters that you can download and just make certain things easier as you're writing Python or whatever it might be. It supports a whole ton of different languages and scripting and so on. But I haven't really gotten into an IDE as such. There's never been quite enough value there for the the smaller kind of projects that I do that I've wanted to get into that. I mean, is there a, a you know line in your mind where you need to graduate from text editor to uh, you know, IDE? For me, the big one is the debugger because I obviously want to I want to test the code and I'm able to see where the variables are at and the parameters at and things like that. The debugger within a full-on IDE or, or ISE, you know, integrated scripting environment, is really robust. So rather than having to put little markers within the code saying, you know, stop here, put a debug flag, that kind of jazz, you can kind of visually go through it and that's only getting better. Plus, you get things like integrated source control, you know, search and diffing across different files and things like that natively. You know, I used to be a Notepad++ user for a long time as well. But I found that the new generation of IDEs are really lightweight, very plug-in based, very community based. And they take a lot of the overhead stuff out of the way because really all I want to do is write 
the best code I possibly can and not worry about anything else. And I feel like previous generations of IDEs were so heavy that it would take like a week to get everything kind of set up to like start writing code. And with this, for example, I already peed into a workstation that didn't have it, grabbed it real quick. It was just, you know, megabytes to download, installed it, popped a few plugins in there, I was ready to go within like three minutes. I just Googled Visual Studio Code for Mac because this is new to me. So, all right, this is going to happen. I've converted one person. <laughs> yes. This is going to happen. <laughs> it's really, it's weird to like promote Microsoft stuff for not Microsoft Windows and feel good about your recommendation. But man, once you try this thing, I've been using it for almost a year now, lightly, and I, I just, I'm really impressed. It's good stuff. And the price is right. And a follow up from Jeremy. What is the best source, in your opinion, for best practices in script and module writing? I'm more steeped in the PowerShell world, so I'll say there's a great module called PS Script Analyzer, and it's got kind of a group think or, or you know, kind of a distributed brain trust of all the best things to do for PowerShell code, as well as like what are the things to look out for and not do. And so that's nice because PS Script Analyzer, especially if you're using VS Code, will just automatically interrogate your code and say, oh, man, you put a credential parameter in there, but you didn't secure it, or you put a password parameter and then do secure string, or you know, it essentially just allows all sorts of group knowledge base, like the tribal knowledge has been distilled into code and then can watch over what you're, what you're doing, as well as uh, there's a PowerShell-docs repo within the PowerShell project, and it's got a lot of great documentation and style sheets and things like that to really make sure that your code looks nice and pretty which I suppose if you're using, you know, Notepad or even Notepad++, the formatting technologies to like extend your acronyms and turn or your aliases and turn them into full commands, things like that. The bad habits that we tend to do aren't there. And these newer generation of tools will automatically correct your bad habits and tell you like, hey, stop using sleep. You should use write-sleep or start-sleep as an example. we have to do to get Chris to never ever talk about scale or crust again all right my takeaway this round is going to be serious so strap in I'm so sorry it's just such a frequent theme on this show and it bears repeating I guess at this momentous but arbitrary milestone so especially where your career is concerned you've got to stay curious and motivated to learn find a project that taxes your skills and get after it I like it. It applies to all disciplines, not just technology. It's probably the best advice these guys ever give you. Blah, blah, blah. They're great. You've heard the show. Anyway, this next part is my favorite. Here we go. Okay, we're back with some more questions. And Ariel, if you could go back in time and give yourself three tips when you were starting this podcast, what would they be? Ethan, do you want to lead us off here? Three tips for starting this podcast. Okay, well, when I started this podcast with Chris, I had already done a few years of podcasting. So I'm going to I'm gonna just reframe the question a little bit. If I were to go way back to the beginning of my podcasting experience, which goes back to 2010, three quick points here. I'll say if you're thinking about starting a podcast, first of all, you want to be professional but not a perfectionist. So there's a fine line there. Some people are so worried about every little sentence coming out right and every – little paragraph, you know, saying exactly what they wanted to say that they just, they can't hit publish ever because they're so obsessed about every little detail. You can't go that way. On the other hand, you do want to be professional. You don't just want to be completely winging it and so on. You got to have a plan, have a strategy in mind, a script that you've written out with at least an outline to give you a, a framework that you can use to record that podcast. 
Another thought here is if you're a host, you want to let the guests do most of the talking. Your, your ego as the host is really irrelevant. You're a vehicle. You're a facilitator as a podcast host. You bring on the guest who has the knowledge and let them do most of the talking. And then uh, a third point here is to learn how to ask good questions. So the skill you're developing if you're going to host a podcast is the ability to draw out the information that your guest has to offer. That's a skill and it takes time to figure out what the questions are to ask and then write those questions down so that the podcast comes out as a story really that develops from beginning to end. Not that every podcast follows that exact format, but that's that's a good skill to have is learning to ask uh, good questions. And those were tips I would have given myself starting this or really you know, going all the way back to the beginning of my podcasting experience. If I'd had those things in mind, maybe some of those early shows would have come out better. Wow, those are, those are pretty good answers, man. You know, my answer is I cheated. And Ethan's been doing this forever, as well as, you know, Greg and, and Drew and those folks. So I got to kind of skip, you know, skip past go and collect my $200 right away. <laughs> they already had a wealth of podcasting experience under their belt. So I didn't really have to go through the stumbling. For me, it was just getting over my fear of saying the wrong thing and trying not to be nervous because there is something weird about recording it, you know, like putting on your podcaster voice and try not to worry about when you make mistakes and when you have to repeat things and, and knowing they can be edited. So just the comfort level, I feel like maybe it's not necessarily a tip, but it's just something that takes time for you to get really comfortable knowing that you're being recorded when you talk. Another question from Ariel. What episode are you most proud of and why? And Ethan, you can lead us off here too. Uh, probably episode 58. Um, this was the show about Kubernetes with Kelsey Hightower. So if you guys don't know, um, listening here in the audience, how the show works, Chris and I go back and forth writing scripts, researching and pulling in guests. Typically, Chris is point man for one show. I'll be point man for another show. And we, we just go back and forth that way. And for, so for me personally, episode 58 was happened to be one of the shows I was point on. Kelsey uh, Hightower was uh, agreed to be a guest to talk about Kubernetes, and the show just came out well. It was way longer than our normal format, but Kelsey was just sharing so much information, and he's kind of a hard-to-schedule guest that it just made sense to let him run. And he made a really complex product, Kubernetes, much easier to understand. And that's, that's a show that in our catalog I'm, I'm particularly proud of. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree there. I didn't get to be on that show because I had a schedule conflict at the last minute and getting Kelsey on the show, his schedule is bonkers. So rather than rescheduling for me, we just went forward with it. One show that I did bring to the table that I was pretty proud of was we did a show with Charity Majors at Honeycomb, episode 65, Cloudy with a Chance of Ops. And it was cool for me because she's one of my heroes. I'd always wanted to talk with her. Uh, I've seen her speak at various conferences. So for me, it was more of a meet your hero moment and get to hear from someone who's extremely smart, witty, uh, I think has a good vision, et cetera. You know, I don't know if it was super popular from a downloads perspective, but I loved recording that show. And, and I loved it also because I learned a lot. And I'm just going to say I got to sub in for Chris on that episode 58 on Kubernetes. So I'm yeah, tickled did. that it showed up in Ethan's list. So what episode do you remember because you learned something unexpected and turned out to be pleasantly surprised by it? You have to be pleasantly surprised or yeah, just I don't surprised? know about pleasantly surprised necessarily. Yeah, or horrified, but... that's fine too. You can be horrified. 
Well, Ariel, let's see. I, I guess I don't have a specific episode to say, but I do have themes that have recurred over the last two years of recording Data Nods episode. One is this the disconnect between operators and developers. I, I kind of assumed in the IT world that we were starting to get past this because in my own experience, I'd, I'd started to get in the habit of, of talking to developers when possible when I was uh, getting their apps loaded on infrastructure. But But the animosity does seem real as I read more and more conference presentations and you know, watch folks on YouTube that are talking about this stuff and and so on. And, and there's a presumption that seems to be that infrastructure is easy because cloud, and that's not – there's just a real disconnect there, I think, between folks. Uh, another point is how little some non-networking people seem to grasp about networking. Chris, you and I have had this conversation several times. Uh, and networking seems like a, a source of frustration to engineers who have other specializations as if – Networking something that can kind of be taken for granted until it doesn't work, you know. So I'm I'm glad, you know, in that sense that data knots our theme of silo busting really comes up strongly when we get into the, some of the networking topics that uh, that we talk about in the show. Yeah, another takeaway, I guess, or a thing I've noticed is that good technology doesn't necessarily do especially well just because it's good tech or seems to have a strong use case. So, so for example, I'm really taken with unikernels. I think unikernels are, are efficient and they, they really are trying to solve a security problem. And yet they're not taking over the world because, you know, I mean, there's reasons tooling, troubleshooting with unikernels is a little bit difficult and so on. But I still think unikernels should be more popular in a bigger part of the conversation than they really are. Another theme here, open standards are <laughs> really competitive, driven by end users or vendors that might have competing interests or their own things they're trying to get done at heart. And, and altruism is really gone in the open source world, I'm, for the, I think. For, and I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's how I feel about it. Another thing, I've, that's just a thing I've noticed is we've interviewed a lot of people that are in the open source world or about open source projects on this show. And then you get to the guts of what's going on and it's like, oh, okay, these people are angry at each other. <laughs> that's why these different <laughs> projects exist. Another theme here, distributed storage systems I think are really, really cool, really cool. From my point of view, operating them well means you have to understand networking and disk I.O. and how to recover from failures and you know other really complex technological problems. And products that take advantage of multiple disciplines like this are just fascinating to me. So I'm, I'm kind of an old hat for someone like Chris, I know, but I think distributed storage is really cool. And then I guess if I want to pick out one specific episode that interested me was was uh, perhaps the one on cloud exchanges, which goes back to episode 20. You know, the idea that you can buy bandwidth directly into your public cloud provider and go around the internet, you know, not use the internet for that. I mean, that changes how application designs get done. And that was one of those things that when the topic came up, I hadn't been previously acquainted with it. It really changed the way I thought about application design and leveraging public cloud infrastructures. So I, I went on for a long time there, Chris. I, you got some comments too? Um, I'll just, I mean, the question was about, you know, learn something unexpected. I learned in show 42 on serverless architecture that we did not have the best grasp on serverless architecture. Obviously, you try the best you can. You try to learn something and share it. And this is something where we kind of riffed on it a bit. and. The good thing was that later on, we actually had someone reach out. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, um, I think it was, oh yeah, Brian Gracely came on and he pinged me and he's like, you know, there's a few things that you're close, but you're not there. And I'm like, that's awesome. Do you mind, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to complain, you better be able to fix it. And, and in his case, he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. I'll come on. And in show 47, we kind of did a follow-up to serverless architecture where we really had a lot of things that I had bad assumptions on kind of clarified and things like that. So Obviously, we're always trying to get the data as correct as possible, and this was a brand new thing that we're trying to wrap our minds around. And 
it was unexpected that we had someone come on and say, hey, I'd like to, to help out and give you some more details on it. And I was pleasantly surprised at how Show 47 turned out when we really went deep on in the weeds on serverless. All right, and it's a slightly different version of this question. What episode has surprised you with abnormal feedback or popularity from your listeners? That is, is there a subject you guys did that you thought no one's going to listen to this and then turned out not to be? It, it's a little hard to remember because the show's two years old, and uh, and and so there's you know things come and go across the weeks with various comments. So I, I I might be forgetting something, but I will say the recent episode ninety three that we did on erasure coding and distributed storage did get a lot of love on Twitter. A lot of people saying nice things that they enjoyed the show or learned a lot about the show, etc. Jay Metz was a great guest. You know, I'm glad it was well received because I did a lot of reading and uh, watching of YouTube to write the script that uh, was the basis for that show, and and then that's the payoff. When people really care about it. And it's a kind of a side comment here. I mean, it's interesting that considering this show is roughly 20,000 people in the audience, we don't get a lot of feedback overall. I mean, no one really sends emails or leaves comments or tweets at us about it, which isn't a complaint. It's just like, that's just the way it is. And so a lot of times we make guesses about how popular a show might be versus other ones in the catalog by observing download numbers. You know, that that's really the best that we have. So, I mean, if you're someone like, oh, they must be buried in comments all the time. No, we're really not. So, I mean, if you've got something to say about a show, feel free to uh, write in or tweet at us, uh, datanauts underscore show, or leave a comment at packetbushers.net about a show with your thoughts. would love to hear from more people about what they get out of the shows or what we're doing well or doing badly. Those are good points. I mean, I guess I would take it a little bit differently. I I rarely ever look at the numbers, to be honest with you. I'm not really concerned with the downloads on the shows and things like that. I would base which one had great feedback and popularity based on when I go to events, people now recognize me as a host of the data knots. And a lot of conversations begin that way. Whereas before it was the uh, wall network blog or, you know, VMware specific stuff. So for me, I have a lot of people reference some early shows that we did. I think it was 21 and 22, 21. I talked about beating skills entropy, essentially <laughs> Ethan and I were kind of lamenting like, man, we're, we're really losing a lot of that hands-on day to day that we used to have. And so how do we, continue to learn, gain skills, get certs if we need to, find resources. And then we followed up with that on show 22, talking about certifications specifically. You know, what do we like? What don't we like? Should we do it? You know, frustrations, whatever. A lot of people actually echo that because they're going through similar things. And I guess I didn't realize how many people were going through that. You know, I'm not getting enough hands-on time or looking for more. I'm trying to get a cert under my belt. So those are pretty popular just because I had people come to me and say, I listened to that show or maybe that got them hooked as well as more in my own community, uh, Show 84 we did on the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit that I went to. And I came away super, super charged from it. I was just so jazzed up to be in a room with a couple hundred amazingly talented PowerShell developers. And so the show got a lot of popularity, I think, just because I was hitting my people. Uh, you know, And I, I posted it as kind of a call to action that, hey, everybody should go to the, the show again next year. So it was nice to get some recognition from the folks that I went to show uh, went to the show at the PowerShell and DevOps Global Summit with uh, after it released. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. Thank you to everyone who took the time to write in with questions. If you want to connect with the Data Knots, you can reach Ethan at ECBanks on Twitter or via his blog. That's EthanCBanks.com. And you can chill out with Chris on Twitter. That is at Chris Wall. Or check out his blog, WallNetwork.com. That's W-A-H-L Network.com. 
And for more Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find Data Not talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to the cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your storage spindles spin, and your D&D characters be correctly aligned. Chaotic evil paladins, man. <laughs> I healed you negatively. You're dead. <laughs> that's where. That's what I was trying to say, but nicer. <laughs> that's the episode title right there. Don't Jen, don't put that in the show. <laughs> <laughs>